Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 27. I have the passage for you on the insert, and it might be best if you just look at that because we're going to walk through this chapter together. We're studying through Isaiah, and this is certainly one of the more uh, difficult sections of interpretation. You know, um, Isaiah, it is a high Hebrew prose. It's one of the most difficult books to interpret uh, and one of the most difficult books to translate. Uh, In 1947, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and up till that time, they only had uh, scrolls of Isaiah dating from the 9th century uh, after Christ. But the Dead Sea Scrolls had whole books of Isaiah in scroll form that were dated from the 1st century, almost 800 years between, and they were identical. So it's a beautiful translation history, but what was interesting is the the translators up to that point were hoping that they would find something that would help them with some of the difficult translation points, but it was so well kept, it was, we have what God has given us. Uh, it's just tough to translate, and you'll see it. If you have different versions and you read Isaiah 27, uh, the, the way that the punctuation is, pronouns could be different. It's a challenging, challenging passage that we'll look at together. So the outline you have will really be more of a a summary or a recap, because I want to walk verse by verse with you through Isaiah 27 so that all of us understand to the best of our ability with God's Spirit what it is he is telling us, because this is a message that's not just dated 2,700 years ago when it was first written, but it's for us and for our edification. So here now as I read Isaiah 27 the first time, listen closely, it's the kind of passage you have to read multiple times to really gather. It's God's holy, inspired, and errant, and indeed beautiful word. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces... No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken. Like the wilderness, there the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, He who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates 
to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are reading an ancient text with a completely relevant meaning and application. We are reading of your warnings and promises to your people in the day of Isaiah, in the day of Israel's exile, in the day of your vivid promises about the coming life and work of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, who has come. Help us in 2016 to see something timeless of your character and dealings with us that are revealed here. May we grow in our awe of you and so grow in our humility and trust. Make us to walk from this place with a higher view of you than the view that we had when we came in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As is the case with most of us today, I find myself too busy to take in the beauty of God's creation. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy hunting so much. It's not so much uh, the final result of harvesting an animal, but it has more to do, quite honestly, with having opportunity to finally be quiet, to not have the phone ring or have anything to answer to. It's before anybody's even awake. And I'm sitting there an hour before the sun comes up, and the sky is black, and there's no competing lights, and there are thousands of stars. And I just look at those stars, and I am calm for a moment, and I'm overwhelmed by the glory of God's heavens and who he is. And it just makes me realize how small I am. And even though my problems seem big, to God, they're small. Because all of this is small to him. And he's greater than it all. He's bigger than it all. And of course, as a believer, through the lens of Scripture, I know he created all these things. And it declares his glory. I also know that he's given us an even greater picture of himself. One that allows us to be right with him. That's his revealed word. What he has given to us by Scripture. And so when we come to many passages of the Bible, the purpose for those passages is to show us the greatness of God, to put us up against that bigness so that we fall upon him, so we recognize who he is and we bow to him. And there are some passages, especially in books like the prophets, where we're just in awe of what God will do, what he has done, what he can do, and what he has given for us as a refuge. He never leaves us. When he speaks of judgment, it's always with an end that we would be repentant or that we would be dependent. And he calls us to humility when we see who he is. So even if all we did was study the character of God this morning, that would help you in your everyday life. It would help put things into perspective. It would help you have trust in God who controls all situations. And that's certainly what we have a bit of when we come to this last chapter of a bigger section about God's judgments. He's bringing judgment on the nations as he's disciplining his people. Now, it's interesting. He does the same activity towards his people as he does the nations when he brings oppression or he brings conquerors, but the purpose is totally different. The difficulties that come are for the purpose of wiping out people who he's judging. For the people who are his, it's to bring them humility and repentance so that they trust again in him. It's measured and it's purposeful. And I think that's important for us as a life lesson. That when difficulty comes into your life, whether it's God's discipline or just the difficulties that happen in the fallen world, they're always measured by God. He has them for a purpose to better draw you into dependence upon him. It's how he does it most of the time. 
And we see it over and over again as we study Scripture, and even in this chapter 27 of Isaiah. So much of the prophet's message in the first half of this book is about the sovereign character of Almighty God. Through this reading and study, we are meeting God, and one of the most practical, observable truths of Scripture is on display again for us, that difficult times are meant to bring about humility, repentance, and purity as God's provisions and his promises remain sure. Now, I decided to walk slowly through the passage with you because as I started to read it in preparation, it was tough. It's a tough I, if you only heard it for the first time, which most people probably did, that, you're probably wondering, what did he mean by that? What did the prophet mean by What is that? Whoa. And we do that a lot in Isaiah, but this chapter in particular, I find my, my, myself reading it over and over and over and really struggling through to see what it is that God is communicating to us. Then I was comforted when I came to the commentaries later in the week. I usually save that to the end. I try to do the work before and then see what uh, people much smarter than me say. And I came to John Oswald's commentary, and he said this about the section. It relieved me, but it also made me nervous. He said, this segment is difficult both textually and interpretively. The often unaccountable changes in tense, person, and gender all contribute to the difficulty, as do rare vocabulary and intricate phrasings. So I thought rather than the outline I had prepared on Wednesday, I'm going to walk through the passage with you and help you see what it says and then as a conclusion draw some of those elements to the forefront. So with your copy of God's Word or that insert copy you have, look with me as we walk through Isaiah 27. It starts out with a phrase that comes from chapter 26. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original scroll of Isaiah. So it's probably really meant to be part of the last chapter. However, I know why translators did what they did. If you notice verse 1, it starts in that day. And then down at verse 13, the last verse, in that day. In fact, the phrase is used twice in verse 1 and 2, and then twice more in 12 and 13. They're like bookends. It alerts us to a thought, a complete thought. And there's a song that's laden in the middle of this, as we have seen songs written before in Isaiah. It says, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan. Now pause there. You'll see the first introduction of an instrument that God will use. It's metaphorical, of course. It's a great and strong sword that's used for judgment. That's the symbol of judgment here. Later, in verse 13, he'll have the great trumpet, which is the instrument of summoning. Judgment and summoning. The great sword of the Lord and the great trumpet of the Lord Those are the bookends, and they're the future. They're the final consummation, the ultimate ends at God working all things. Verse 1 and 2 are about the future ultimately. 12 and 13, the future ultimately. Those two provisions of God, promises of God that this will come to pass, are bookends for what happened in between. What happens in between, that's where it gets a little bit hard to follow because it's about immediate future, it's about present, it's about immediate future for them but fulfilled by our time. And so we have to walk carefully through it to see what it's saying and how it applies. Back to verse 1, talking of that ultimate thing that God will do. With that great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Lots of discussion. Are these three different beasts correlating to Revelation 19 and 20? Very possibly. No doubt, John in Revelation, he's seeing things that... that closely relate to what is revealed in Isaiah. But there's also something else to consider. In Isaiah's day, 
It was common for the ancients to use these terms, Leviathan or dragon or beasts or monsters, to describe those who were oppressing them, other nations, as a metaphor for those nations. So that concept would have been known to the Israelites. And so in revealing what God will do, God says that he will crush those things that they're scared of. So the things you're scared of oppressing you, God will wipe them out. God's more powerful than any advancing army or any imperial power. He's far stronger. He will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is at sea. These are all symbolic of the enemies of God. And God will, in the end, ultimately destroy all of these things. And that's the reminder of ultimate reality, what will happen. And what will be left in that day, verse 2, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. Sing of it. Your versions might talk about a pleasant vineyard of red wine. Some of the manuscripts say that. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. And a song comes after that. It's a, it's a celebration. Now, verse 1 is ultimate future. Verse 2 is what will come from God's final winnowing, his refinement. But now verse 3 starts to talk more into the terms of the present because a vineyard is a descriptor for God's people. You might remember, I hope you remember, Isaiah chapter 5, God described God's people, the church in the Old Testament, as a vineyard, but it was a destitute vineyard. It produced wolf grapes, the kind you can't eat because of judgment. So now we have the picture of a purified, a pleasant vineyard for the people of God. So he's working this refinement process through difficulty and trial and discipline to bring them into purity, to humble reliance. That's the pattern. It's a common pattern in Scripture, not just corporately, but we know this personally, and we see it in the epistles as Paul talks about the purpose of trials and difficulties in our lives. But you have this picture of a vineyard, and a vineyard does not grow overnight. If you know anything about vineyards, in the world of agriculture, it's the hardest thing to develop because it takes years before you get your first edible fruits. Years, not just a season. So God takes this epoch in time, in the time of Isaiah up and through even now, as he develops his people, as he calls his people, as he purifies his people, ultimately destroying our enemies and saying a pleasant vineyard. But before that time, he has work to do. Verse 3, I, the Lord, am its keeper. He's talking about the vineyard. Every moment I water it. He doesn't send a workman to do it. He waters it. He cultivates his people. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it day and night, or night and day. He's protecting it. So he's nurturing it, and he's protecting it. He himself, with his hand over it. Then he says something that is true of what he provides later in Isaiah. I have no wrath, he says. He's talking about his vineyard. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, enemies to battle. Would that I had them. I would march up against them. I would burn them up together. See, God is saying that he welcomes a chance to show his love for his people. If enemies would show themselves up against them, he would be happy to march against them, to burn them. And there's no wrath, we know, because of what is revealed later in Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, for instance, Comfort, comfort my people, he says to to Israel. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God's given atonement, we know ultimately through his Messiah, Christ. So there's no wrath when it comes to God and his people. 
Yes, he brings difficulty. Absolutely. He brings discipline. But a father disciplines one he loves. And the discipline is not wrathful. It's purposeful. Now, it's wrathful for those who are not in Christ, a different outcome. The same difficulty can hit a Christian and an unbeliever in their different purposes. Now, we'd say generally it's always to draw people to Christ. But it could be ultimately that he does according to his will and justice to those who don't believe. But he does a similar thing to someone who's a believer, but it's for the purpose of deepening them. This is a common theme. It's tough to hear because we don't like pain. I don't like pain. But that's the common way that God will grow us in closer dependence. And it's not just because God likes to see pain, not at all. It's always because of our tendency towards idolatry, which comes later. We'll see this. In Isaiah 53, the reason there's no wrath. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's Messiah. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So this grace that God has for his people, no wrath, he'll protect them, also shows a grace that is extended to anyone who would come to him for protection. There's a, it's seeming, it seems to be a sense of offer to those who are his enemies, the briars and the thorns that he promises he'll take down. Verse 5, it seems to be saying, or let them lay hold of my protection. Who are them? Them is a reference to the briars and the thorns that come up against that he would take down. He's saying, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. It's a call to peace with him through submission to him, to dependence upon him, the atonement only he can give. As they come up against God's people, God is calling them to stop and to believe. Verse 6, God speaks of the cultivating he will do for his people on the final day. In days to come, before the final day, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Once again, we have a reference to what God promised to do through Abraham. Back in the book of Genesis, many years before this time period, God promised Abraham to make him a people, but that was never the end goal, just an ethnic people. It was a people who would become a blessing to the nations. They would be fruitful so that all tribes and tongues would be blessed by the Messiah who would come. Other would be a fruitfulness that came from Israel, and the fruitfulness would be Messiah. It's a beautiful picture of what is working itself out in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham being realized. Even though they're being disciplined, even though punishments come upon God's not done with them. He's protecting them at the same time because he will establish them and eventually Messiah will come from them. And then from Messiah, we'll see an explosion of the people of God in time and space as they come to Messiah from all corners of earth. That gives us the preface to the picture in Revelation when all tribes and tongues are gathered around giving worship to God. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Now, verse 7, this is the passage that, as I read, if you would admit it, was tough to follow. It was for me. I had to read it multiple times. But it makes sense as you start to understand, especially the pronouns become the challenge. Uh, He reminds his people that even despite their difficulty and their hardship at the present time, The punishment that he's bringing to them is not as bad as what he brings to the unbelievers. 
the rebe- those who are rebelling, those who are not responding in repentance. Look at it in that light, verse 7. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Say that again. Has he struck them, Israel, as he struck those, the nations, like Assyria, who struck them? So Assyria was striking Israel. God was striking Israel through Assyria. But ultimately, in all the striking, the striking that happened was severe towards those who did not believe, and it was temporal in its purpose for the Israelites. Do you not see that, Israel? In the midst of your discipline, do you not realize that what I'm doing to you is nothing compared to the final judgment that is being cast upon these? Verse 7, it says it in another way. Or have they, Israel, been slain as their slayers, Assyria, were slain? You don't know, no one here knows an Assyrian. Uh, No Moabites running around today. How many Ammonites have you met? These are lands that were utterly done away with. But God has kept his people, brought them through great trial, and he has expanded his people, and he has fulfilled his people in a way that can never be defeated. Because Israel, true Israel, are all those who trust in Christ. They are the true sons and daughters of Abraham, as it says in Galatians. And for that reason, the people of God have done nothing but grow. Even under duress, usually under duress, they grow and they grow and they grow, and they will always have God's name associated with them because it's God's promise to do so. And for all the hardship that we may face, what he pours out on us is for the furtherance or the purifying of us to grow us, while what he pours out on others is final in its judgment. Take this personally. Difficult times for you, whatever it is you're dealing with right now, Difficult times. And I don't mean it's the discipline of God. It could just be something, like I mentioned, that's happened because of the fall. Because we live in a sinful world with things that happen that are terrible. Whatever it is, though, it's still measured by God. He's sovereign over this. There's nothing that escapes him. He didn't say, oops, oh, that happened. I didn't mean for it to happen. It happens. It's hard for us to understand this. But he always does it with measure. He does it with carefulness and with purpose. And we can know that and rest in that as tough as it is. Difficult times are meant to bring about humility to bring about repentance where necessary. And it's purifying, it's purging, as God's provisions and promises always stay sure. And we know it's measured. Look at verse 8, because he's speaking again of Israel, another tough passage to, to interpret. It says, measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. So now the prophet Isaiah is speaking to God. Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. And you can imagine Isaiah with a pastor's mind about his people and he's struggling with the sin of his people. He's advocating for his people. He's speaking for God. But he's recognizing what God just said is true. That God has brought discipline, but it's not as bad as what has happened to the nations. It has a purpose. And he says, measure by measure, carefully now, measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them, Israel. So by exile, which was the main way nations would break down other nations. They would oppress, they would conquer, then they would disperse them all over to take away their cultural identity, their language. All sorts of loss would happen in this exile punishment that was put upon the Israelites and other nations. They'd be dispersed by exile. They'd be disciplined by exile. Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He, now he's speaking in general again, he, God, removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. He's talking about the Israelites under his discipline. He has, by the east wind, a descriptor for all the nations, because Israel on the map, everything is east, coming towards them. This east wind came and he dispersed them 
by exile. That was his measured discipline for them. Though this dispersing them and making them disconnected is a very difficult challenge and discipline, it was to cause desperation in them so they would call out for God. He was doing his intended work in the hearts of his people. And we know it worked immediately because he eventually brings them back to the land. And we know ultimately this is how he gathers all people to himself who are called by his name. Verse 9 says, Therefore, by this, that is the disbursement in exile, the punishment or discipline he brought, therefore by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. We're in verse 9. And this will be the fruit full of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. What a picture of God's work in his people to bring about repentance. So he brings this discipline upon them. He removes their guilt. And the way his guilt, their guilt is removed is that when they're brought to the end of themselves, they're humbled, they are repentant at that point. They're brought to repentance. And repentance means turning from sin and turning unto Christ. And for them, turning unto the promised Messiah. We see for us, it's turning away from our idols and unto Christ. How do I know idols? Look what it says is the fruit of this work of God. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. So all the things that came into Israel from the surrounding nations that God was calling them out on, the idols, uh, literally the idols, and asherim is an Asherah pole that was made with different images of different gods that they were to bow down to. And all this had infiltrated Israel, the people of God. And how we'll know repentance is true is that when God crushes our idols and he calls us to himself in humility and we turn to him, And he loves us so much that he keeps crushing our idols. You say, I don't have these idols. Anything that you love more than God right now is an idol that he hates. And he loves you too much to keep having you worship that empty thing. That thing you love more than him, the thing you're thinking about right now instead of worship you want to be with or do, that thing that you think will make you full, the thing that makes you count before people, the thing if you have you'll be right, or this relationship that I want so bad I can't get out of my mind. All those idols are robbing glory from God your God who has bought you with the price, and he won't share his glory. So he crushes our idols when he calls us to himself by repentance. Thank God he brings us difficulty because we would worship our idols to the day we died if he didn't. And this is what he does for his people over and over and over again, and it's the great grace of God that keeps us from worshiping things that fade and fail and are futile. And he calls us, by this humility that he brings to Christ, the only place we can go, the Messiah, who in chapter 53 of Isaiah, we are told it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, Messiah's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is what is meant by verse 9. Therefore, by this, this discipline, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins, the taking away of these idols, these things that they worship, the things we worship, instead of God. 
What difficulty are you experiencing today? What idol is God crushing? You know, sometimes that's the pain. It's he's crushing an idol. I want you to think internally now. I could do this myself on the spot. Think God brings things to my mind, idols I have. All these little ones make up big ones, and they take away devotion to God. And it hurts when he crushes them. Maybe whatever you're hurting over, it could be because an idol's getting crushed. I'm not saying for sure, but it could be that. We can be sure of the fate of those who don't believe because he continually reminds us in his prophecies, in Isaiah especially, but we have it here, a picture again as we move towards the other bookend. Remember verse 1 and verse 2 is about the future. Verse 12 and 13 about the future, ultimate future. Now we're ramping back up into that verse 10. It's immediate with a picture to the future. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. Used to be an area of commerce. Could be Jerusalem. Could be the capital of one of the opposing nations. Commentators disagree. The point is, the stronghold of man will be laid low. So where there used to be these centers of commerce and buildings and places that showed the richness of the area, they would be laid low and calf, a calf would walk in and just graze. Uh, things would be broken down. It says when the, its boughs are dry and they're, they're broken, women come and make a fire of them. Usually when they have women doing work that's usually prescribed for men, it's because the men have died in battle or something like that. And it could be that in this case, that it's just everything is broken down to the point where uh, it's, there's no pride left in these nations or in Israel. You know, when I think of cities, what are they known for often? You buy a T-shirt in a city, it'll show the cityscape on it. And Kansas City has some identifiable features. Not a huge city, but it has some. You go to St. Louis, you always have the arch in there. If you go to Chicago, you see, uh, you see the towers there, the John Hancock building, the Will, the, the, what used to be the Sears Tower. I still call it that. That's what I saw when I was lived there for years. I know that cityscape when I see it. And it cries out about something that lasts longer than us. It's something that we think is, is just powerful and standing, and those buildings always look the same. And we think there is man-made glory and power. I remember when the towers came down in New York, it was as someone who's come from New York and seen my whole life that cityscape, it still jars me when I see a new cityscape and I see the other tower that's been built in its place, and I can't get used to not seeing the Twin Towers. It's built when I was young, and I've only ever known that cityscape. And it's, it just speaks to what? You have to admit, it speaks to the man's weakness a bit. When we see this, that cityscape we're proud of, and it's gone, these buildings. Imagine if the whole of the city's wiped out, or the whole of something we've always thought was so strong. That's the picture. The fortified city, it's solitary. A habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. The things the Israelites were so scared of that they were compromising concerning to have, to have treaties with Egypt will be brought low. The thing that you thought was so strong would save you will not be saved itself. What we think is secure isn't really, not against God's power anyways. For this is a people without discernment, another reminder of the people God judges. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. Here's the thing about God's harsh words of judgment. They are given to us right now. We are receiving them. They received them 27 years ago. And what's glorious about this? The end has not come. There is opportunity for repentance. There's opportunity to turn from our sin. God is gracious in telling us what is true. It's harsh, yes, but now we have a chance to run to Christ. We have a chance to turn to him. But the one who won't, for a people without discernment, as it says here, therefore he who has made them will have no compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. They have not taken the opportunity to repent when it was given. 
What a theme that is before us, God judging unbelief and telling us, don't, un- don't align yourself with that unbelief. Don't make their idols your idols because they'll be destroyed. Don't be fooled by their apparent strength in this world because it's fading, it's false. Now we have a return to ultimate judgment in verse 12, the catchphrase, in that day. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. Now he looks to the day when he calls all his people to himself. It's clearly a picture bigger than the return from Persia. This can't just be that simple return under Cyrus. There's more here. This is an ultimate threshing out in that day, it says, that catchphrase that draws us back to the end and ultimate final reality that God brings about. In the second instrument of this passage, verse 13, and in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who are lost in the land of Assyria, those who are symbolic of those who are exiled and out, that's all people who are lost and are now going to be found, who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. I love how Franz Dalich, another brilliant commentator, says it. God will, through a carefully controlled judgment, bring Israel to the point where they can be restored to their land. And it's far more than physical restoration. It's ultimate restoration. One of the most practical, observable truths of Scripture is on display again for us in this passage. Difficult times are meant to bring about humility, repentance, and purity as God's provisions and promises remain sure. For the fall of Israel, as they go into exile, it meant loss of life. It meant loss of livelihood, loss of family. Any of the losses that we have suffered, they understood from their experience in this time of conquering. Loss of cultural identity, loss of their religion and ability to express their faith, loss of peace, loss of safety, loss, loss, loss. But God's wrath never supersedes his care. Behind the wrath, the care continues unabated, as Oswald says. It requires only repentance. Whenever God brings judgment for sin, he at the same time brings repentance and salvation. The sword and the trumpet of God. The sword of his judgment comes, but his trumpet calls. Answer the call. It's a way of recapping the outline that I have there on your sheet. We have comfort in a future that is certain. The future is in verse 1 and 2, verse 12 and 13. Judgment's sure. Those who are not in Christ will receive that judgment ultimately. Those in Christ will be part of the pleasant vineyard. God's great sword is his judgment that he brings. His great trumpet is his summons to salvation, a gathering of the elect. Difficulty will be our lot. Difficulty will bring, though, in its work, humility, repentance, and purification will depend on God as a right response to the difficulties we experience. We see through this that God provides what we need to grow and to be cultivated. We see that as he waters and protects his vineyard. We see that his plan is to grow a people. It is his objective to grow a people to his own glory. They'll be fruitful on the earth. And then he purges, he purges through this process. The process of exile does this for the Israelites in trial. This is for the purpose of purifying. One of the most practical, observable truths in Scripture is what we see again, how difficult times work repentance in us and make us dependent upon God. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Romans, of many passages I could cite, 
He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. God's affection in our lives today, it continues. Not for the purpose, uh, he doesn't do any of these actions or challenge or disciplines for the purpose of destruction, but rather for refinement. That's the purpose. If trouble and adversity have come our way, our attitude or understanding about God will make all the difference in how we receive them. I'll close with a quote once more from Oswald, who says it better than I can. He said, This is not easy for us who are tempted to avoid pain at all costs want to hear. But we must realize that God does not have destruction in mind when he allows suffering to come across our path. If it is not for discipline, it may well be for a testimony of his grace in the conflict with evil. At any rate, we can know that just as Christ's sufferings led to his glory, so may ours. For God's final purpose is to lead us beyond judgment to the final ingathering, the pleasant vineyard. Let's pray. Lord, we are moved by this uh, picture that we have painted for us in Isaiah, I pray that you would give us clarity about what it means and how it applies. And Lord, we respond once again as we hear your word with what you have said in your word. Behold, you are our salvation. In you we will trust and we will not be afraid. For you, the Lord God, are our strength and our song, and you have become our salvation. Amen.